I think there's this myth that you can affix the adjective democratic to socialism and thereby it automatically becomes democratic. And I think that really is a deep failure of learning the lessons of the last hundred years. We've seen that the capitalist system is, of course, conformable with a lot of terrible dictatorships. Chile under Pinochet was a terrible dictatorship, but it was also very capitalist. So capitalism in itself does not give us freedom. That is absolutely clear. Well, China um, is the best example of that. China is a strong example of that today. But you also see very clearly is that every time that you've start, that you've actually tried state ownership of a means of production at any substantial scale. Obviously, various countries have state ownership of one particular industry. In Germany, for a long time, the railways were state-owned and so on, and you can carve out certain industries. But if it comes true that the vast majority of economic activity is owned by the state, every single time that was tried, it has turned into a terrible dictatorship. And so I think you have to have a very sophisticated theory about why that was the case and how you're going to avoid that in the future if you propose to try that again. And just saying, hey, I'm a socialist, but I'm a democratic socialist, but I think democracy is nice. Uh, that just doesn't cut it. Hi, you're listening to Keeping It Civil, a production of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. I'm your host, Duncan Minch. In this podcast, I interview prominent scholars, writers, and intellectuals about the American political tradition and the state of intellectual life in the United States. The point of the podcast is to have an intellectual exchange of views on political, civic, and social issues in American life. Many of the guests on the podcast are part of the school's speaker series, which invites liberal progressives and conservative voices that we feel are important for the advancement of civil and liberal education today. We've got a really good show today. I'll be speaking with Yashka Monk, associate professor at John Hopkins University and the author of The People vs. Democracy. There was a lot of tension in this one, probably more than any of the interviews I've done at Keeping It Civil so far. And I guess it shouldn't be much of a surprise, really. Monk and I are sort of bizarro versions of each other. Our surnames both translate to the same thing. His in Polish, mine in German. He's an American-German where his Jewishness could never be forgotten. I'm a German-American, and my Jewish ancestry has been a total afterthought. He's an anti-populist, and I'm an ardent defender of populism. And I'm pretty adamant that it's a totally misunderstood and misrepresented political tradition. Monk is a typical high-pedigree intellectual, educated at Cambridge and then Harvard, and I'm just some punk rock galoot from Salt Lake who left the Mormon church and somehow bounced around the world getting a bunch of graduate degrees. How misunderstood middle America is is always the center of my focus, which is very different from his, and so I think that kind of explains some of the tension amongst all the other differences. But I think this is one of the key things about this podcast is to have difficult conversations like this from people who have very different backgrounds, even if they have nearly the same surname. We talk over each other in a bunch of spots, a lot more than I would have liked. I tried to edit around it, but in some places there was just nothing to be done. Thanks so much. I think you'll enjoy it. So let's just kind of start a little bit with personal stuff. So you, um, your family came from Poland. They were communists. They were essentially expelled from Poland because they were Jews. But I have to admit, for somebody like myself, I study world history. I wasn't familiar with this piece of history. And so I found it somewhat confusing. So I hope you could kind of explain it to the audience. Yeah, I mean, so there was something like 3 million Jews in Poland before the war. And then obviously a lot of them were killed and perished in the Holocaust. A good number of surviving ones left in in the 40s or the 50s. And so by 1966, 1967, there was, I believe, something like 50,000 Jews left in Poland, so a very small number. 
And when you started to get the beginnings of the Prague Spring, the sort of reform movement against a more hardcore orthodox version of Stalinist communism in Czechoslovakia, as it was then, the Polish regime realized that there might be a threat against it. And it tried to think of who it could scapegoat. And so in a famous speech... Why would you, the, why would you scapegoat such little numbers? Is this how deep anti-Semitism was I in Poland so. that, that you would... Such but, a minuscule amount of people. Well, but I mean, I'm, as I'm sure you know, there's, there was anti-Semitic pogroms within communist regimes repeatedly. I mean, there was the show trials in the early 50s in the Soviet Union in various parts of the Eastern Bloc. There is, of course, a paradox of why an ideology that sounded very appealing on its face and that claimed of itself that its whole point was not to make distinctions between people by virtue of a religion or by virtue of a race would end up again and again being tempted by this kind of bigotry. But Poland is by no means unique in that. In this famous speech, Gomulka, the head of a central committee of the Polish Communist Party, basically called Jews a fifth column within the country that was supposedly more loyal to Israel than they were to Poland which is a perennial insult lobbed against Jews and one was particularly implausible in Poland at the time because mm. most Jews had left and the ones who had stayed really were convinced communists. That is the reason why, not all of them, but why a big majority of them stayed. And that's, as you alluded to, was true of my grandparents who had become communists as teenagers in various shtetls in Central and Eastern Europe and had stayed in Poland because they were enthusiastic about building a communist regime that they thought would treat them better and treat the world better. So in Instead, you ended up getting this really state-sponsored series of persecutions and pogroms. Jews were thrown out of their jobs. My own family had a spotlight directed at its apartment from a sort of police car for a while. My mother, when she... Uh, Just to kind of torment them or to turn a spotlight on them so that people would know they were in the neighborhood? or Yeah, a little bit of both. Some mixture of psychological intimidation and a way of saying we're, we're watching you. So within a couple of years, the vast majority of remaining Jews left the country. And by 1970, there was only about 500 Jews left in the country. And so that's in, how... In all of Poland? Yeah. That's amazing. And so that's how my family ended up leaving Poland. And my mother went for various reasons ended up in Germany. Your uncle, I think, is the one that you talk about the most in the book, Leon, if I'm getting it right. He uh, kind well, of Leon was my grandfather. Oh, it was your grandfather. Oh, excuse me. Okay. He remained uh, at least a kind of conflicted but somewhat devout communist throughout the rest of his life, or am I getting this wrong? No, I'm, I, no it's not clear to me that he did. I think he became a kind of social democrat. I mean, he certainly didn't see himself as a capitalist. He certainly didn't. He was offered a job in sort of management at a printing company he'd done business with when he was in Poland and he had bought printing machinery from this printing business in Germany and they offered him a job when he came to Germany as a refugee. And he said, no, I'd rather be a printer setting the next day's newspaper sort of letter by letter, which is the trade that he'd learned as a kid. So certainly I think he was on the left and he was critical of capitalism, but I think he, by the time that I knew him and certainly by the time that we had any kind of conversation about politics, he passed away when I was 16, so the conversations were only so and so deep about politics. But I would say he was a social democrat who wanted a robust welfare state, who was critical of aspects of capitalism, but who certainly didn't believe in, in, in the kind of communism that had been practiced in the Eastern Bloc. So he said something to you that I thought was pretty interesting. I really seized on because I, I'm interested in this exact question, I would say. So he said something to you, at least to, this is how you mentioned it in the book, that he didn't believe that communists had it right, but he didn't believe capitalists had it right either. But that someday something new would come along hmm. and he was jealous of you because he felt like you would live to see it happen and that he wouldn't. And of course, he wasn't wrong about that part of it. But do you think that that's true? Well, I mean, I think we're seeing all kinds of new things, whether they're any more desirable, I don't know. I guess I'm slightly skeptical. I think we're going to see permutations of capitalism 
capitalism and hopefully we'll see versions of capitalism which bring more wealth and affluence to a larger number of people and hopefully we'll find ways to reinvigorate the welfare state in such a way that all of us together can put uh, limits to the market where they're appropriate, can ensure that wealth is actually distributed fairly. Um, But isn't that just social democracy? I mean, it seemed to me like, unless I'm getting the quote that you used in your book wrong, and I spent a large part of my life thinking of myself as a hardcore socialist, and so I've been around a lot of these people and read a lot of this literature and used to think very similar things, so this is why it intrigued me. that What you're describing seems more like social democracy. If I'm getting your grandfather correct, he was referring to almost an entirely new ideology or a new economic system. Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's probably right if that's what he was thinking about. It's hard to know exactly where one economic system starts and where another one begins, and in the end, those end up being conceptual questions about how to use certain phrases and nouns and so on. I certainly think that any decent economic system is going to use market mechanisms very heavily. And so markets would be ne- absolutely necessary for any system to be truly free in your mind? So you think he might be... <clears throat> I think both systems to be free because if if you don't have markets, it always means that you have a lot of political control. And so you have to be very, very trusting of the extent of control that ordinary people can exercise over the government if you want to give anybody that much power. And I fear that that's a little bit naive in most contexts or in all contexts. What's interesting that you said everyday people or common people, because usually it's kind of the opposite in terms of the Soviet system, Polish system being no different. It's not everyday people, right? It's a bunch of government elite bureaucrats. Well, that's the point, that you can have a political system that's founded very much by people in the opposition, very much by people who are marginal in society, very much by people who are in some ways objectively downtrodden. But once they gain power, they become the new elite. And if they have all of the power, because there's no effective market, and they ensure who gets a nice toucher and who doesn't get a toucher, and who gets a nice job and who might be carted off to jail, they very quickly start to behave in some of the same corrupt and self-serving ways as other elites. And so that's precisely why I think having some amount of economic freedom that gives people a modicum of independence from the government, whoever the government is, is important. The other thing is that I think for all kinds of deep reasons, markets are the most effective way of producing goods. And so even if you solve the political aspect of a problem, if you somehow manage to have a non-market-based economic system in which the people who are in control don't therefore become politically oppressive, I also worry that it wouldn't be a particularly affluent society. Mm, Interesting. Obviously, there are many people on the socialist left who would debate that. They would say that actually markets are the least efficient ways of doing things. And a lot of people who kind of fantasize, even if they're not necessarily Trotskyites, they're maybe more of the Jacobin style neo-Marxist iteration, they do tend to fantasize about Dubček and what would have happened if the Prague Spring had been allowed to run its course. Do you ever have any thoughts about that, given that, obviously, as we just talked about earlier, it played such an enormous role in eventually driving your family to Germany? Well, I think Alexander Dubček, who started the Prague Spring, who was the leader of the Czechoslovak Communist Party in 1968, was an honorable man who was trying to make a deeply inhumane system a little bit less inhumane and I think of him fondly for that I do think it's a little bit of a fantasy to think that if only the Soviets hadn't invaded Czechoslovakia the system would have been a deeply democratic system in which the state retains complete control of the means of production so I think there would have been two paths forward within Czechoslovakia 
either he would have introduced a real element of market mechanisms, in which case the society might have ended up being free and democratic, but also in some important ways capitalist, or I think in the end repression would have ridden high once again. I think there's this myth that you can affix the adjective democratic to socialism and thereby it automatically becomes democratic. And I think that really is a deep failure of learning the lessons of the last hundred years. We've seen that the capitalist system is, of course, conformable with a lot of terrible dictatorships. Chile under Pinochet was a terrible dictatorship, but it was also very capitalist. So capitalism in itself does not give us freedom. That is absolutely clear. Well, China um, is the best example of that. China is a strong example of that today. But you also see very clearly is that every time that you've, start, that you've actually tried state ownership of a means of production at any substantial scale, obviously various countries have state ownership of one particular industry. In Germany for a long time, the railways were state-owned and so on. I mean, you can carve out certain industries. But if it becomes true that the vast majority of economic activity is owned by the state, every single time that was tried, it has turned into a terrible dictatorship. And so I think you have to have a very sophisticated theory about why that was the case and how you're going to avoid that in the future if you propose to try that again. And just saying, hey, I'm a socialist, but I'm a democratic socialist, but I think democracy is nice, uh, that just doesn't cut it. That's naive. Well, it's funny that you say that because uh, just a little bit uh, about my this entire narrative that you just played out was exactly explains my youth because I took a bunch of classes from a very charismatic socialist at a university. And this is exactly how he portrayed it, as if the problems of the Soviet Union and Cuba, etc., were just small things that were easily fixed. And if you're 19, 18, even 20, and you don't really have a whole lot of background because it's not exactly our education system. Now, German education system might be different, but in the United States, fills you in on all kinds of details about a political economy. I thought, okay, yeah, it makes some sense. And it took me about, I don't know, gosh, maybe five more years of an intellectual journey, including going to the most Marxist program in the entire world and being around these folks and realizing, oh, wait a minute. No, no, no. This They have no idea how to square the circle of actual representative democracy or any kind of independence in terms of the economy and the planned economy, because that's what we're talking about. And so I wrote my master's thesis, you might find this interesting, about reviewing all the different socialist plans that came out after the Soviet Union, claiming to figure out a way to actually make it democratic. Oh, interesting. And, um, and what happened to them if they I, I, got, my a, conclusion, got a chance to? My conclusion was that they were all fantasies. There were some ideas that were fairly intriguing. I'm not saying that every single thing discussed was ridiculous, but many of them were quite ridiculous. And I compared them to 19th century utopias and kind of tried to show the similarities between fictional novels and the economies that these, in some cases, actual mathematicians had proposed. And so this was a major part of my intellectual journey was figuring this out. And it wasn't necessarily something that was obvious. I kind of had to figure it out on my own. And this is one of the, I would say, great failures of not just the American left, because this is a problem of the world left, is that they don't discuss these things. And they do act like it's a fairly easy thing to just combine, as you said, democracy with, quote unquote, socialism, or what they're really talking about is a planned economy, sort of communism. And there isn't an easy way. But that doesn't necessarily mean that your grand 
grandfather wasn't pointing to something essential, that we might need something that's not quite liberal capitalism and not quite Marxist, Leninist, planned economy, obviously undemocratic socialism. And so to pivot from this, maybe on some level, populism is the transition point of how we get to that on some level. So I'm kind of taking one of the major narratives of your book and maybe flipping it and saying maybe there is a real positive turn to this. What do you think of that? Well, I think that's naive. I don't think it's possible theoretically. I mean, perhaps, who knows? I think there's a lot of good empirical reasons to be very doubtful of that. Populists, and we can perhaps discuss at some point what exactly we mean by populism, because I think it's a term, like many political terms, but it's used too loosely often. But populists often come in pointing to real problems. They come in pointing in contexts like Italy or Brazil, for example, to deep corruption that really did exist in those systems and saying, I'm going to make it better. They're very good at speaking for real grievances that people have. And I think those are grievances we need to take very seriously. But the evidence suggests that in virtually every case, they don't solve those problems, they actually make it worse. So on the corruption point, in a study with my colleague Jordan Kyle, we show that actually countries become more corrupt once a populist takes over. And you could run the same kind of evidence for all kinds of other things. Populists say that they're going to make systems more democratic, but what they actually do is to abolish political freedoms. And so to stake our hope for something that is incredibly hard, which is to invent an economic system that somehow works better than the one we've had, even for all of the attempts to improve on it, other than in reformist, small social democratic ways, appear to have failed. And to say those people who now have a proven track record of making countries more corrupt when they say they're going to become less corrupt, of making countries less democratic when they claim to be returning power to the people, they're going to be the midwives of this new economic order. Anything is theoretically possible, but it doesn't strike me that we have very good reason to assume that that's about to happen. I'm not saying that it would be a direct line, Mm -hmm. but that maybe it's the initial stages. And so obviously the greatest fear, ultimate worst result of populism is the Nazi rise, because there's obviously very populist elements to the Nazi movement. But I think this is something that I was excited to debate with you to a certain extent. Whose fault are the Nazis rise. Whose fault is it? Is it the left's fault or is it the German right's fault? Whose fault is it? I don't know that I'm particularly interested in discussing the rise of the Nazis in that way and I'm not quite sure. I think if we were in a court of law I would say, please explain the, the relevance to, to, well, okay, to, to so, the proceedings here. But, um, well, let me explain it to you. So a lot of, I think one of the things I think is sort of distressing about the way you portray things in your book is you kind of write off a lot of the genuine grievances that a lot of people in populist movements have. For instance, elites, cosmopolitan, internationalist elites really don't give a crap what everyday people in most of their countries, in America certainly included, think. And they aren't interested in creating an economy that works for them. I think that's a fair assumption on their part. And they rightly stand up and revolt. And to not acknowledge that is quite foolhardy. And in the same way that people had a right to be angry about the failures of Weimar. Now, maybe they weren't right at the, angry at the right people. Certainly not in many cases. But they had a right to be angry. So your thesis is that we should give more credence to the Nazi party in Germany. I didn't say because, that. Because uh, a lot anything of the things that. we're pissed off about are actually right. That, that, that seems no, to no, me no, like no, a, no, 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 like no, 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 don't, don't put words in my mouth. I said that populist. You just totally. You just did the ultimate. Well, you're the man. one who brought it to the Nazis. I mean, look. I said, I, let's, I, but let's, I brought it there because let's, let's forget saying, about the Nazis because I don't think that's going to be helpful to me in this conversation. It's certainly not going to be helpful to you in this conversation. The way you've set up a comparison, but well, no, I'm saying talk- that the populist movements have a very good reason for existing. They have genuine grievances. Yeah, and so and, if you, and if I'm you, saying if you, even if you, if you look people, at people in Weimar had a very good reason to be angry with the elites. They did. Weimar was. 
failing. Right. So look, if you look at my book on this topic, The People versus Democracy, there's a whole part of a book, the book has three parts, and one part of a book is devoted to trying to understand why it is that populism is on the rise at the moment. I agree with you that there's sometimes an attempt to say, well, one morning people woke up and they just turned out to be crazy. Just looking at the rise of populism within particular contexts, saying, well, it's just really about these particular things in the history of our country, and we can't look at any other countries to understand what's going on. So it's really just about everything that's wrong in our country. Uh, and I think that's unrealistic. If well, you I, don't, see wait, these... I don't think that's a fair description of a lot of the populist movements that are actually going on. I think many of them are quite... Even if you look at somebody like Steve Bannon, he's very outward yeah, I, I, I wasn't talking yeah, about the okay. populists. I was talking uh, about some of the people who try to explain populism away. As... Oh, oh, okay. Excuse me. So I think that's clearly wrong. But if you have a big political movement rising in many different countries around the world at the same time, it's not just that people woke up and suddenly went crazy. It's that they must be angry at something. When so many people are angry at something, they probably have a reason to be angry. And so the argument I make in the book is that on a number of important dimensions, there's been structural changes that give people good reason to be disoriented and in some cases very upset. So one of those is the economic dimension. Now, I think, by the way, especially if you come from the left, you should recognize the extent to which capitalism has delivered over the last 20 or 30 years. We have 2 billion people around the world who were poor, who didn't have access to electricity, who uh, didn't have reliable access to food, who now lead modestly middle-class lives. That is one of the great achievements in the history of humanity. But when you look at a lot of the countries where populists have risen, and it's not true in all of them, there's a lot of people who don't feel like they're getting ahead and they feel like the kids are going to do worse than them. And that's a break with what they have historically come to expect. And that's certainly a good reason to be pissed off. If you're in a neighborhood where you have a feeling that you might still be doing okay and perhaps your kids will do okay if they move far away, but the town is dying, you have a good reason to be upset. And that certainly helps to explain the rise of populism in, in many contexts in North America and Western Europe. I think there's a second set of reasons which is around cultural and to some extent demographic change with people who feel that their status in life is being threatened or challenged by those changes. I have a little bit less sympathy for those fears, but but I think it's important but to understand a, those fears in their own terms as well and to understand why that's disorienting for people. And then finally, I think that the rise of the internet and of social media has given a deep structural change to the way our politics works, and that's made it easier for some of those movements to rise. But I think that, that shows quite clearly that I'm not saying, oh my God, there's no particular reason why these people rise. Now, what I think is naive is to say that just because somebody comes in and says, I get your anger, we should believe that they're able to actually deliver on that anger in any significant way, and certainly to then jump to the conclusion that they're somehow going to reinvent an economic system, uh, I'm which, not, I'm which not, people for 150 you can see years have tried people, to reinvent you and, can see and, and have failed they, to do so, I think is naive. But you can, Well, of course it's naive. I'm saying you could see why people would think that, though. People like us... Us, who spend our whole lives studying politics and eat, sleep, and breathe politics and history are total freaks. Agreed. Okay. Most people, and that's not just in the United States, it would be the same in Germany or Poland or Greece or wherever. Most people only care on the periphery. And one of the things I heard you say in your book, which was very triggering to me, is that populists portray things as if the answers are easy. Well, that's exactly what you should do in politics. That's how you win. I mean, of course, people are going to come along and peddle easy answers. People like Hillary Clinton are bound to lose. If wonks, especially in a country like the United States, which is not no, you, exactly you, one. You started this conversation by asking uh -huh. me whether we should actually believe that they will be able to find this completely new. No, that's not what I meant. System. I meant that it so, might represent so, so, that it might represent. 
represents something positive in the long run because we need to well, get it to won't something. if they come in on these promises which i agree with you can be electorally effective if you don't have good opposition to it but those promises are in fact overly simplistic and are in fact fraudulent well in that case they won't invent anything new and i don't see how it's positive that they exploit people's aspirations which may be noble aspirations as indeed I didn't many say of the aspirations for communism were noble but if it leads to a political system and an economic system that's much worse and leaves people less well off and more exploited then i don't see why we should give it this benefit of a doubt but somehow over the long run something positive is going to come from it this is an interesting point of view in the sense that do you see there are contemporary globalist neoliberal for lack of a better word regime just going on forever of course on some at some point it's going to crumble and i think we're living through its demise and so what's going to come next and people are upset about it rightly so and well, so they're pushing I mean, they've latched on to leaders many of whom yeah are sure are deceptive so d- but d- are, define define neoliberal for me because i never know what this term means and i certainly well, I, don't I, know I, what I mean, the term I, globalist I think it's, means which was invented invented by people around steve bannon and so on so uh, i'm a little bit skeptical about that being I'm even more well, no, no, I, I, don't, I don't like term, it as a term. I don't like it as a term either. I'm saying, but this is the term that most people would use to describe our contemporary politics. I think it's fair to say that people are reacting. I don't know. I don't know that it is the term most people would use. That's not clear to me. But anyway, well, okay, so what, if it isn't, if it is. So what do you ter- mean by that? Like, can this globalist neoliberal system go on for? What do you mean by that? Because that's not a question that I can easily interpret. What I mean is that this era of free trade, which is mostly dominated by cosmopolitan elites most of whom are of incredible wealth, who have their interests up and over the interests even of their national populations. That part of the populist narrative, I don't even really think is up for debate. When people point at it and use it as a straw man, it might not even be a straw man because it's more or less accurate. And that that has not really led, as you even say in your book, to the rise in income and standard of living of most countries involved in this process over the last 25, if not 35 years, that that was a promise that liberal democracy used to be able to make to people, you say this in your book, that their incomes and their standard of living would rise. Well, that's not the case anymore. It's especially not the case in the United States, but it's not even the case, I don't think, unless I'm wrong, in Western Europe. How can you expect people not to be mad and not expect people to then listen to a demagogue? That's should be something that would be par for the course. Well, I so guess first what of I'm all, saying. you keep you can always mix everything in the world together into an indistinct pot of blotch. But well, you what know, does that you, mean? You, you, you keep running very different questions into each other. One question is why is it that these populists are rising, and are there real reasons why people are angry? That's a question that I agree with you is an important question, and I answer in the book. And, and I, well, give, you, I, but give I the disagree with your answer. The other, though, is what I'm saying. Well, well fair yeah. enough. We can yeah. discuss the answer. But yeah. the other question is: Does this somehow necessarily mean that there's something? legitimate or justified that's going to come out of it? Does this somehow imply that obviously something positive will be the result? And that's just a very, very different question. And it doesn't follow at all from the first one. Well, something positive so, can come out of everything. But even, could. I, I mean, question even, is, even is World War II reason? had a positive role. In the end, it was the rise of social democratic capitalism in Europe. So something positive came out of possibly the worst event in all of human history. Well, so, I mean, okay, you that's, can, that's, that's, I guess, what I'm asking you, to, the frame to look at it, is that this is the initial stage. Yeah, it's not, it's not unimaginable that once we've beaten some of these political movements, which I think are very dangerous to people's rights, to people's freedoms, that after that we might have 
in some ways a better political system. That's not unimaginable, I think. That's a rather different framing from saying, oh, well, you know, isn't this stuff uh, going to somehow uh, well, lead to not, good yeah, results? Yeah, I think, you're is, getting, I think you're getting caught in up on my initial framing. I'm not saying these initial people, I'm not saying Donald Trump has some wonderful <laughs> new system that he's going to introduce at some point or the five-star movement in Italy or something. I mean, that's not what I'm saying. So if, if that's how it came across, that's not at all the question or the narrative that I'm posing. I'm saying from a grand bird's eye point of view of political development, this is the initial reaction against a system that is quite unfair to everyday people in most of the countries that are experiencing it. And I feel like... The th- well, so, so, let's, so let's get into that. Okay, so again, I absolutely agree with you that there are legitimate grievances that people have and that there are strong reforms that we should have. I'm somebody who we can discuss my particular political history at some point. I would now see myself somewhere on the center-left. I believe in market mechanisms. I also believe in the importance of a strong and generous welfare state. I think the American welfare state has historically been incomplete and one of the most important tasks is to complete it, to make sure that people have everything from maternity and paternity leave to universal access to health insurance and all of the other kinds of ways in which the United States lags behind the development of a welfare state in many of our peer democracies. So I absolutely agree with you that there's important aspects of a contemporary political and economic system that are unjust that we can improve. Now, I also think that it's important not to say that everything is bad. The debate of where exactly living standards lie is, is complicated. They have improved for most Americans in the last decades. They have not improved nearly as quickly as they did in the past. There's complicated questions about how much further they, they should improve. But I think it's also important not to overstate how unjust our political system is. I'll ask you a question. What percentage do you think of Americans whose parents were in the bottom quintile of the income distribution, so their parents were in the bottom 20% of how much money people make in the United States, what percentage of them do you think are also, once they reach a similar age, in the bottom quintile of the income distribution? What a similar age? What What's the age? Well, so if you're looking at the parents at 40, then once oh, they themselves okay. are 40, because obviously you can't compare well, so, the parents. Well, so but I would need to at, know the age. Okay, so if the parents are at 40 and they're in the lowest quintile, and you're asking me once of the current generation, so that would be people my age, right? Right, once kids. Well, I just want to make sure but, I'm, I'm, you gave me a hypothetical question that, that I'm supposed to try and answer accurately. I want to make sure I know what I'm being asked. So that would have to be, so are we talking about age 40 or are we talking about, age, the age is important, I think, here. What age are we talking about? Well, I think you can look at it at different ages and the statistic ends up being the same, but let's say at age 40. So the people in the bottom quintile who so your stay, in the, were, stay in the bottom quintile by age 40. Is that what you're asking? Right. So if your parents uh-huh. were in the bottom quintile of the income yeah. distribution, how likely is it that by the time that you reach 40, you are going to still be in the bottom quintile of the income distribution? Well, for my generation, I think it would be much higher than previous generations. What percentage do you think that would be? 35%. That's about what it is right yeah. now. That means that about two-thirds of people mm-hmm. do actually experience significant upward social mobility. But um, I would still, I would bet you would acknowledge looking at those numbers, and I, obviously I don't have them off the top of my head and haven't seen them, but I'm just guessing, being a fairly informed observer, that that's 35% is much higher than it used to be. Well, I don't think we have that data going back, so I think it's hard to know that specific data. But I think what I'm trying to say with that is that our economic system could be a lot more just, but it's also easy to overestimate how unjust it is. I recently ran a poll around a this point, data yeah. on my Instagram account, which is not where I normally post political analysis, but if you want to see pictures of uh, various venues I'm speaking at, feel free to follow me. And I asked people, do you think it's one in three or do you think it's two in three? And something like 90% of my followers who voted in this poll said it's two in three. I'm sure that 66% of people whose parents were in the bottom quintile of the income distribution themselves will be in the bottom quintile of the income distribution. But and it what 
what quintile that, were they in? So were they just above or were they... Well, there's a spread, right, um, right. obviously. But I think it's easy to caricature our political system. And again, let me go back to this point about the 2 billion people around the world, because people who are most likely to oppose our economic system at least claim to be internationalists, right? They claim to not just care about the well-being of Americans and so on, but they say the reason why capitalism is so bad is that it's making people destitute around the world. And that is really the claim that has the least empirical evidence. When you look around the world, it is quite clear that over the last decades, our economic system has managed to raise billions of people out of poverty. And by the way, when you look at the world population as a whole, we actually are in a much more equal place than we were 20 or 30 years ago, because so many people in countries like India and China have experienced real improvements in their living standards, as the living standards in countries like the United States have grown a little bit less fast. The aggregate result of that is that when you take the global population as a whole, the Gini coefficient has started to look a lot less bad, a lot better, a lot more equal than it did in the past. So can this globalist neoliberal moment go on forever? Well, I don't know what that means. I think there's certainly going to be changes to our trade regime. I think we certainly have to make sure that we get rid of havens for tax havens where people can legally and often illegally hide their money, claim that all of our profits. But how would we ever get rid of those things if those are the people in control who've established them? The idea that there isn't some kind of consensus to a certain extent and there's all this gridlock in Washington is sort of a myth. There's quite a bit of a consensus for certain things. Look at how Nancy Pelosi impeached Trump the same week that she approved the military budget. When the elites want things done, they get done. And the military budget, of course, in this country at least, being one of those things, nobody was going to impede that. Well, I don't know. Right? If you're looking at American politics right now and, and you think that Elizabeth Warren and Donald Trump are secretly in cahoots with each other and they agree on everything, then I think you're looking at it through a different set of shades than I am. But I see you're sporting some quite stylish shades, so perhaps uh, perhaps you need to take them off in I, order to I see what's use, going on. These are for actually for medical reasons, but Thank you. Appreciate that. I apologize. Here's the thing, though. When populists point towards a lot of things like, to use the actual phrase you use in your book, elites have this kind of fetishism for foreignness and diversity. I mean, that's a real thing. First of all, I did not say that in those terms. I want to clarify that. Uh, it um, was uh, something along those lines. What do you remember phrasing it as? I'm not sure, to be honest, what exactly you're referring to. Um, well, you uh, used it. You didn't use it as a positive. You said that sometimes populists or populist critics, whether they're necessarily commentators pundits or politicians point towards in anger that elites have this kind of fetishism for foreignness and quote-unquote diversity well that's a you pointed this into your book i don't remember the exact page so I've, i think it, i need to have a page reference to know what exactly you're alluding to and, well, let, and, let me and just finish puzzled the, by it but, uh, yeah let me yeah, finish the ahead. thought and then you can correct me if you think that i'm misportraying it you portrayed it as if this was something that was delusional. But of course, it's real. Have you sat on a university admissions committee or a scholarship committee or especially a faculty hiring committee? The fetishism, especially in America or Canada, of non-European peoples is extraordinarily strong. I mean, this is a real thing. And I could give you dozens of examples, some I've witnessed personally, and many that I know people who've been on these committees and could tell similar examples. Example. So for people, people are aware of these kinds of stories, and they're aware that elites are not at all interested.
interested in helping middle Americans of most stripes, but especially of certain ethnic backgrounds that don't fit their fetishized version of diversity. So they get angry about it. And isn't this the fault on some level of the elites for doing this to begin with and not being interested in those people's interests, their narratives, well, again, their I, experiences? I, I just slightly fear that you're building up a, a, a kind of strange straw man here. So let me try and rescue something in that point. Um, today I wrote about a poll that was going around on Twitter. It was also written up on CNN and Vice magazine and the New York Post. So it was actually bipartisan in a strange way. Both more progressive outlets like Vice and more conservative outlets like the New York Post wrote about it. And so supposedly 38% of Americans would no longer want to have Corona beer because they're afraid of getting infected with the coronavirus, which of course makes them look quite stupid. And a lot of people had a lot of fun with this on Twitter and elsewhere saying, oh, look at how stupid Americans are. One writer tweeted that they shouldn't be allowed to roam free because of how stupid they are. Now, this smelled fishy to me, and I did a little bit of digging of where this all came from, and it turned out to come from a press release from the PR agency that originally commissioned this poll, which, when you looked at it closely, was deliberately misleading. So it turns out that 38% of Americans would not, at this point in time, under any circumstances, buy a Corona beer, probably because they either don't like Corona beer, or they've never tasted the brand, or they have their own favorite beer that they always drink, or for whatever other reason. Only about 4% of regular Corona drinkers said they would not drink the beer at the moment because of the virus. And yet this was widely shared and tweeted and so on because I think a certain segment of the educated elite, but that goes as far as the New York Post, which is not an elite and not a left-leaning newspaper, like to look at their fellow Americans and think, na 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 na, aren't you stupid? And it turns out that this was fake news, essentially. Mm -hmm. So I share your concern that there can be a way of looking down at a lot of our compatriots, at a lot of our fellow citizens, of portraying them as being much more stupid and much less rational than they actually are. That doesn't mean that you need to buy into this idea of this cosmopolitan elite that's secretly in charge of everything. I didn't say um, secretly. I don't uh, think it's very secret. Or that's openly in charge of everything, <laughs> if you prefer to put it that way. And one point of that is that I'm not sure how many people actually are cosmopolitan in that way. Um, you know, Who, somebody, of the elites? Or, I mean, yeah, so let me give you an example of that. Um, you know, there's this phrase which your sort of question reminded me of by an English writer who says the real debate at the moment is between citizens of somewhere and citizens of nowhere, people who are happy anywhere in the anywheres world. Anywheres versus and, uh, somewheres versus anywheres. Somewheres versus anywheres, that's yeah. right, yes. And I just don't, I think on that definition, if you take it seriously, there really aren't very many anywheres. I know plenty of people, plenty of acquaintances and friends who would happily spend a year or two in London or perhaps even Tokyo, the number of them who actually would be happy to move to another country permanently. Well, but it's not another country. And who wouldn't want to be living in their own country and who would be comfortable operating in a different language is very, very, very small. And so I think this idea that there's these cosmopolitan elites that have no, that aren't shaped by their own country, that don't have any solidarity with their own country, that don't care about their own country, I think that number of people really is very, very small. And it doesn't include most of the most powerful people. You're listening to Keeping It Civil. I'm Duncan Mensch. And today I'm speaking with Yashka Monk, author of The People Versus Democracy. I'm Paul Carice, director of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. We launched Keeping It Civil because we believe in the power of intellectual dialogue to both renew our civic life and remind us of the value of liberal arts learning. 
At the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership, we are restoring space for civil discourse across divergent views on human, civic, and academic issues. Our majors and minors undertake a liberal education to discuss moral and political thought, economic thought, and America's ideals and constitutional principles. They study important historical moments and leaders, and they experience leadership challenges through special seminars, internships, and programs. This broad foundation prepares them to be ethical, adaptive leaders in their chosen professions or civil society or in public affairs. We hope you'll learn more about the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University by visiting scetl.asu.edu. The School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University, a new class of leaders. You're listening to Keeping It Civil. I'm Duncan Mensch, and today I'm speaking with Yashka Monk, author of The People Versus Democracy. I would imagine you spent most of your time in America on the coast, right? You went to Harvard. Have you ever lived anywhere that's considered the quote-unquote heartland? Well, I mean, I, you'll have to tell me what counts as the heartland. Is Phoenix, well, I think Arizona it's pretty, the heartland? Is it? uh, it's within the realm. Yeah, it could be argued. Sure. Yeah, yeah, or? sure. Absolutely. Um, uh, no, the answer is probably no. Okay, so, so to a certain extent, I think this is the disconnect. And I saw this. I'm from Utah, which is absolutely part of the heartland, although a very unique part of it. Studied in Toronto, studied in Berlin briefly, studied in New York. I didn't really get how totally elitist and this coastal, myopic, just denigrative attitude towards people in the heartland is until I worked in New York media. And I worked for Air America, which is was the predecessor organization to MSNBC, same radio station that started radio. Rachel Maddow's career. We were co-workers. Those people, and I'm not guessing because I worked there, I was a news writer, have no interest whatsoever in what people from the heartland think. And let me give you a specific example. I go and I pitch a program to the director of programming. And I said, we should go to the middle of the country and actually talk to people, hear what they actually think. Because most people don't realize that, A, they're not the boobs that other people would like them to think, especially those who write for the Washington Post or the New York Times or the New Yorker or, or Slate or wherever. They're not. And their politics are a lot different than those people think. They're actually much more interested and much more open to social democratic politics. But their social politics are much different. And I tried to explain some of these things. And so I kind of gave a little spiel, very similar, probably about the same length of time, because you don't get very much time with these people. Said something almost along those lines. And she looked at me and she said, Duncan, no one can cares what people in the middle of the country think. There was there was no follow-up. No one cares. All right. And that is a that is a legitimate thing. Let me give you an example. Is there any major intellectual outlet that derives from the heartland of the United States? All of our big newspapers are in the Acela Corridor. Even the Los Angeles Times, which is definitely not the heartland, doesn't compare in its weight and impact to the New Yorker, the Atlantic, or even something like Slate. None of those things exist. And it isn't necessarily because people aren't capable. It's just part of how things have evolved. They don't have a voice. Now, I don't know all of the politics of Western Europe, probably with the same kind of familiarity because I wasn't raised there and, and certainly know it more far better than the average American. And I don't know if it would be quite that way. And I doubt that it is in Germany because Germany has so many small cities. But I wouldn't doubt something somewhat similar is going on in many of these countries. And people are oblivious to it and they're angry. So maybe yeah. it's worth trying to understand their anger a bit more. Yeah. And, I, and how and they're I think, written out and of I the culture. 
and I, and I think I do try to do that in the book. Now, I think the point you're making here is a very different point from how you were labeling it a moment ago, which is that this idea of a sort of cosmopolitan elite who are globalists and so on implies a set of people who don't have any cultural rooting in a particular place, who are sort of it's the billionaires in the United States who are in secret cahoots with the billionaires of Japan. And the well, I don't think it's very, again, I don't think it's very secret. I mean, they're or, pretty or, open or about open it. Right. I mean, um, but what you're describing is something very different. You're not describing billionaires. You're describing people. Uh, you well, know, a lot the, of these the people are not one percenters. They're more like ten percenters. Yeah, the exactly. top ten percent or top fifteen percent. Absolutely. And maybe not even that. Maybe people, just the top twenty-five percent. You're talking about people who I'm sure have a decent income and I'm sure have a nice apartment, but they're by no stretch of imagination super rich. And they're very American. You would put them in London. They would have no idea how to program for an English audience. And they certainly would have no idea at all for how to program for a German audience. So they're very rooted within the United States. Well, they would have no, no idea. They have no so idea de- about those histories or how their politics uh, work. Or absolutely. Anything, so what you're not, describing yeah. is a kind of cultural civil war between different parts of the United States. And I think that's a real phenomenon. And I think understanding that better and understanding the way in which people are pissed off by that, understanding why a lot of people might be offended when they see everybody rushing to assume that 38% of Americans don't know the difference between a virus and a beer and thinking, so that's what you think of us as your fellow citizens. Well, you know, F you. I think that absolutely is a deep instinct which I get and for which there's decent justification. I think putting that in the context of sort of cosmopolitanism and globalism and so on is more misleading than it's helpful because these aren't cosmopolitans, these aren't globalists, these are people who are deeply American who perhaps think of themselves as a certain kind of elite who probably have decent college degrees who certainly are more likely to live in the coastal cities than they are to live in other parts of the country. But this is a clash between two different parts of a country, but both equally parts of a country. When in the American context, for sure. Now, in other countries, because as I said, I, I'm not familiar as much with the inner regional battles that are going on. And of course, most other countries, unless we're talking about China or Russia, are nowhere near as large as this one, at least geographically speaking. So you're not going to have perhaps quite the same kind of divide. But I want to go back to, or actually not back because we haven't discussed it yet, one of the central distinctions you make in the book, which is that we're moving towards two possibilities. One is illiberal democracy and undemocratic liberalism. Describe the two, and then I want to make a separate point, kind of piggyback on top of that. Sure. So I think the basic aspiration of our political system is twofold. And that's why political scientists tend to call it liberal democracy. It doesn't mean liberal in the sense of left or right, of, you know, George W. Bush or Barack Obama. It means that on the one hand, we want individual freedom, that we as individuals should be free from the interference of a state in certain realms of our life, that we need to make sure that we retain our political and religious liberties, that somebody who doesn't like what we say or how we pray can't throw us in jail for that. But secondly, of course, the democratic element, which is to say that we collectively rule ourselves rather than allowing a set of monarchs or generals or priests or imams to tell us how to live. We collectively decide what our laws should be. Now, I think there's two kinds of ways in which that political system can come under pressure or can be undermined. Uh, The first, I think, is to some extent been true for a while, which is that in the United States and parts of Western Europe, we've been reasonably good at protecting the rule of law and the rights of individuals. By no means perfect, um, certainly important minority groups, ethnic and religious minority groups, some sexual minority groups whose rights have not been adequately protected in the past and, and to some extent still aren't adequately protected today. But by historical comparison, by historical standards, we've been pretty good at protecting individual rights and the rule of law in that kind of way. But perhaps we haven't been particularly good at having a responsive political system in which what people want actually gets transacted into public policy. And that has a set of reasons 
institutions, which includes the unresponsive nature of some of our parliaments, of Congress in the United States, as well as the fact that a lot of important decisions have been taken out of democratic contestation and relegated to bureaucratic uh, and other institutions, from the central bank to the Supreme Court to international trade treaties and so on. Right? So that's one set of problems. The other set of problems is that populists, who are in part responding against that, in part it's caused by these other structural factors we discussed before, then say, hey, you know what, the only real reason why we have problems today is that there's all of these corrupt elites who are self-serving and, you know, who look down on you. And, and so all we need to do is for somebody who truly speaks for the people to come in, get rid of all of these elites and put in place the simplistic solutions that are going to make this country better. And the crucial element of that is this claim to exclusive representation. It's not that I can do better than the people who are currently in charge because I really care about you. That's a normal democratic claim. It's to say that I and I alone truly speak for the people. And so anybody who disagrees with me is by virtue of that fact illegitimate. It's by virtue of that fact dangerous. And so what we need to do And we is should take to, away their rights, whether it's just small things in terms of making their lives more difficult or putting them in concentration camps or taking away their voting rights. And in that case, if I'm getting you correct, that is illiberal democracy, right? Because the foundation of it is, yes, technically democratic because it would be ruled by the majority and a demotic sense in the true sense of the word demos, right? So while technically democratic, not liberal, and I think if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, this is how you would portray the rise of most of the current populist movements, yeah, that's right. So I think what you see with these populist movements is that first of all, they often undermine in a more extreme way the rights of minorities. So first of all, they say, well, individual rights is all good and fine if you're part of a majority group, but if you're from this religious minority or from this ethnic minority, then we really don't have to care about you all too much and we can treat you a lot more ruthlessly. So it's illiberal in the first instance because the rights of a lot of our fellow citizens start being mistreated. Um, in the second sense, it's illiberal because it starts to subvert the rule of law and the separation of powers. But we need to protect to make sure that we retain those freedoms, even those of us who are part of a majority group in whatever relevant sense it may be. So what you're seeing in countries from Hungary to Turkey to Venezuela, that these populists are coming in and they're saying, I'm going to take control of the courts, of the electoral committee, of the law enforcement agencies. And suddenly, if you criticize the government, you might be fined or put in jail. If you run a newspaper that doesn't get on board of a regime, then your license is revoked or for various economic means will force you to sell to somebody who's more sympathetic. And so you see the space for freedom of speech dwindling very quickly. Quickly. And the last step of this, and that's why I think of illiberal democracy as not a permanent state of affairs, as something that's likely to be a sort of way station on the way to outright dictatorship. And that's because once the populace controls the electoral commission and controls the newspapers and people are too scared to say their opinion about it, then it no longer becomes possible to remove a democratically elected prime minister or president through democratic means. And that's essentially the stage we've gotten to well, in of course, places like Hungary and Turkey and Venezuela. And of course, the rise of the Nazis is the is the fast track, right, where all of this happened over the course of 18 months, or is it less than 18 months? And, yeah, and so I what mean, you're I saying mean, is... I, I'm, again, I'm, I don't think it's very helpful to bring in the Nazis for various uh, reasons. Right. And, and one well, of I'm just saying that's the worst that, case scenario. Though. There were people, though, and I think quite recklessly, and I don't know if you'd agree with this or not, who constantly at the beginning of Trump's term compared him to Hitler. Even some fairly decent scholars did this, and this was, I would say, more than a little bit. Yeah, and that's why I think that it's helpful to think of Trump as a populist. It's not 
helpful to think of him as a fascist. And you're right that some people... And it's not useful, right? But yeah. I'm saying, I, all I'm saying is you can understand why they went there because if you are thinking in the most catastrophic way, that's, that's where well, you can understand would... why they went there because that's what every internet argument always ends up being. It sure, ends up sure. being as, about Hitler course. and the Nazis. But no, I think it's importantly different, right? And one of the important ways in which it's different is that those movements were much more openly anti-democratic. So those movements said, well, democracy is bad, it doesn't work. We need a much more hierarchical society. That's not what populists say. Populists say, the system was never really democratic. What you need to do is to trust me to sweep aside all these institutions and then I'll make it properly democratic. Mm-hmm. So that is a very they, good are, point. They, are, they are more hypocritical than many other dictators. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. When you look at the military dictators in Latin America in the 70s and the 80s, they were terrible dictators, but they're a lot more honest on that count. Most of them rolled up in front of parliament in a tank one day and said, you know, all this democracy stuff isn't working. Just trust me and I'll make you rich and I'll make sure that you're safe, that there's law and order. And it's worth giving up your freedoms for that. It's a much more openly anti-democratic appeal. What's so it works smart the, but yeah. also so concerning about populism is its ability to subvert democratic aspirations in an anti-democratic manner. The part, though, that I was less clear on was undemocratic liberalism. Mm-hmm. So I, fo- I, f- I, follow, I follow the first description, clearly. Yep. I think that one is, as you just outlined, easy to understand how you get to the point of illiberal democracy through a right-wing populist regime. But undemocratic liberalism, explain that one. I started explaining it earlier. So to me, the idea is that it's a political system which we're reasonably good at protecting individual rights and rule of law, but we're not very good at actually translating popular views into public policies. I think in the United States that's happened for two reasons. One is that Congress is not very responsive to what people want, and that is to do with campaign finance. It has to do... Actually, the point that you might be sympathetic to with a kind of milieu in which a lot of legislators get formed. In the past, I think they were more likely to come on the left out of trade union movements or on the right out of sort of real local notables who ran a little business or perhaps were part of a church in a local community and then became office holders. Instead, today, when you look at the sort of careers of most rising younger congressmen and senators, they all went to a fancy college and then they spent some time working on Wall Street or on the Hill in DC. Pete Buttigieg. Uh, in tech. Well, it's true of a lot of them. And then they sort of might go back to their hometown or run for political office, really shaped by that 10% of people who you're clearly uh, not very happy with. And I think that does mean that they aren't always in touch with people's views and preferences and interests, as they might be. I think, well, by the way, anything, that's they're actively the contemptuous, I think, is part of the things. And so going along with Some your, of them might be, yeah. And, I, and by the way, I, I, I think, 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 think that's sure. that's uh, just, just yeah. one more point that I think is sure. interesting here. I think that's the deeper problem of campaign finance laws, for example. I I mean, no doubt there's a congressman who's sitting in D.C. and thinking, I want to vote for this law, but if I do, then my main campaign contributor is going to be pissed off with me, so I'm not going to do it. That exists, I'm sure. But I don't think that's a common case, actually. I don't think people are that cartoonishly evil, and and most people uh, want to be the heroes in their own story. They want to think that they're doing the right thing. I think the deeper impact of campaign finance is that many congressmen spend up to 50% of their time fundraising, and so they're just expensive to a lot of interest groups a lot of the time. And they understand their concerns and preferences very well. And a lot of those concerns and preferences are perfectly legitimate. It becomes a problem, though, if I always hear from one side of a ledger and I never hear from the other side of a ledger. And I think that's a far deeper problem. So by the time they vote on the law, they're not saying, oh my God, I'm doing something terrible for America here, but I guess that's the price of doing business. I think what's more realistic as a common attitude is, oh no, I think I'm doing something for these good people who I know, who are my friends, and they have a legitimate interest in 
Yeah, and this is where it is truly undemocratic. In this sense, they're not really hearing from everyday people. They don't actually spend that much time in their districts. And when they do, they're mostly hearing from wealthy donors. But so I want to kind of spin your framing to a certain extent, because obviously you can tell that I'm not super happy with the cosmopolitan elites. And I would argue, and of course, I'm looking for your response to this, that a lot of the people that, for lack of a better phrase, cosmopolitan, if we're going to call them top 15 percenters, whatever, the anywheres, okay, that I would argue that these people are both undemocratic in their ideology and illiberal. And let me explain. So they're undemocratic in precisely the ways that you just described. That was fairly clear, and they're undemocratic. But they're also illiberal in the sense that there's such a fetishization of quote-unquote race, which this race based off of a 19th century ridiculous concept of what David Hollinger calls the racial pentagon, right? Five races, white, black, yellow, red, um, and what, what did I just miss? Anyway. Green. <laughs> no, I don't think that's what it is. But um, so, and along with this, they want to look at people and judge their experience primarily based off of quote unquote race. And you can see this, and now it's kind of fallen off of the Democratic presidential debates because most of the people really advocating it enthusiastically are out of the debates, but how reparations became a big topic. And there's so many other aspects of it in terms of how they believe representational correctness and how this is just a massive part of how many of these somewhere, anywhere cosmopolitan, at least in the American context and definitely in the Canadian, and I think it's fair to say in the English and the Australian, so the Anglosphere context, talk about these things that they don't want to deal with people's experience on the individual level, which is the essence, as you know, of liberalism, is that people are judged on their individual achievements, their individual crimes, their individual contributions, etc. They really favor an ideology that at its core, whether it's over-focus on quote-unquote race or an over-focus on gender and orientation, these identity issues, that they are no longer actually liberal. Well, So, so they're both undemocratic for the reason reasons that you outlined yourself, and then in the core aspects of their ideology are actually illiberal. And this is part of what populism is revolting against. Now, I'm not saying any of the populist adherents to these movements could put things in the frame that I just did. That's not the argument. But that doesn't mean that they don't instinctually understand that this is messed up. And this is part of why they're angry. I don't know. I think we're running a lot of different things together again in a way that's not particularly helpful. So let's start with who we're actually talking about here because so far as I recognize what you're saying and I'm not sure to what extent I do it certainly wouldn't be true of everybody who's an elite in the United States and certainly wouldn't be true of everybody who's a holder of political office in America I mean most office holders at the state and federal level in this country are Republicans I certainly don't think that what you're talking about is the sort of main way in which members of the Republican Party think about these issues then you can have a debate about the extent to which that's a fair representation of what the median congressman and the Democratic no, but, Party but, thinks. But populism and is a reaction to elite leftism, right? I mean, I think that's a fair description, unless you're going to challenge it. That populism... Well, I think there's an most argument populism, to be made that part of it is yeah. a reaction to forms of elite leftism. For I think it's also a reaction to some of those more structural features, like a stagnation in living standards. Oh, which, no, no, which I, we, I would agree with that part, too. But I'm saying in terms of culture, the cultural aspect of it, that it's a reaction to elite leftism. Uh, yeah, I think, I think it can have an element of 
that. Now, I think then you ran together a lot of different things in terms of what I take to be important and salutary and what I take to be less important and salutary. I think it's quite clear that in American history and the history of many other countries, big groups have been uh, excluded and discriminated against in deep ways for a long time. Just take sexual minorities until 20 years ago, until less than 20 years ago, it was the official policy of the United States military that if you publicly stated that you were gay or lesbian or if you weren't secretive about having a gay or lesbian partner, you would be booted out of the military. I mean, this is a very real form of discrimination that was federal well, of course policy. It was, sure, of course it was. Uh, within our lifetimes, and we're both pretty young. But I, but um, I wouldn't say, so, but I wouldn't say that any sexual because I'm just using your phrase. I wouldn't say any sexual minorities or orientation minorities are not represented well in universities, and that's shown statistically. There'd be studies for that. They're very well represented, well, and they're very well represented in the arts. But at the same time, it's constantly a part of the narrative and the dialogue. And if anything, they're overrepresented. I think there's something very illiberal about a lot of the forms of discrimination that minority groups have oh, yeah, sure. historically experienced. And we're not talking about uh, the 19th century here. We're talking about things that were happening 20 years ago. And, and perhaps there might be some things that are still happening now. And so I think, first of all, the concern with that is a concern that I, as a proud liberal, strongly share and have. Now, uh, Why share your concern? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that those, those concerns aren't legitimate. Now, may there be ways of reducing every political issue to a question of identity? And may there be ways of just starting to perceive each other through the prism of ethnic and religious and sexual identities to such an extent that we don't think of our fellow citizens as capable of political agency? And may there be something somewhat toxic about a tone, especially on platforms like Twitter, in which people are continually written off as old white men? Yeah, I think that that's quite bad and I don't participate in it. And I do worry about the rise of that kind of mode of talking and arguing on parts of the left. But when I was describing undemocratic liberalism, I was describing a political system which is quite pervasive and exists in many different countries and sort of unites to some extent different parts of a partisan spectrum. I think the aspects of this that really are liberal are rising in ways that we should have a real conversation about, but to characterize them as being dominant at the political level in the United States, much less Western Europe. Well, I don't think they're dominant on a political is, level. Think, they are I dominated is, on a cultural level, though. I mean, I don't think that's really even up for debate. They do dominate all of the major cultural institutions that have, quote unquote, legitimacy. That sort of mind frame dominates universities. It dominates Hollywood, for lack of a better term. It dominates well, most again, again, journalism. Again, again, I think it, it dominates... I think it depends on what you mean by... Music, by, by, most by of it, at least. And what you mean by the underlying set of concerns. I think to have a set of concern about the fact that certain groups are underrepresented in a lot of institutions. A lot of it is based off of assumptions that are actually incorrect. For instance, Asian Americans are not underrepresented for the most part. And maybe in film, for instance, or maybe other parts of media industry, but they aren't in universities. And they they aren't in... Well, they're not underrepresented at universities, but I do think... So I, I wrote an op-ed many years ago, which was not very popular on the left, by the way, for the New York Times, in which I argued that Harvard, the university at which I then was, was discriminating against Asian Americans. And I think when you they look are. at... And they're discriminating the against European Americans too, though. Uh, well, I think, I think so. that's less clear when you look at the figures. I think actually what's going on is that Harvard wants to have a minimum number of African Americans and Hispanics as part of its class. It also doesn't want the number of white Americans to drop too low. And so the way to be able to fulfill both of those aspirations is to then artificially discriminate against Asian Americans and to do that in a particularly pernicious way, which is to give every inter every applicant a score on personality and to find 
mind, as Harvard officially and openly does, that Asian Americans just all happen to have really bad personalities, which yeah. I think well, is a deep form there's of all kinds of ways that they can use these so on. nefarious um, means. So, 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 yeah. so, so I agree with some of the concerns yeah. about that. But again, here, I don't think, I think it's true that Asian Americans aren't underrepresented at universities when the benchmark is the level of the actual population. If the benchmark is the kind of SAT scores they get when they apply to Harvard or even the share of high school valedictorians or even the share of people who are performing at the top levels in various extracurricular activities, then I think it's quite clear that Asian Americans are underrepresented. Well, but, but let me are underrepresented relative to well, uh, sure, in terms of, in in terms of their pool. merit, they are underrepresented as as you just illustrated. I don't think that's even up for debate. But let me give you an idea of underrepresentation in a different sense, though. For instance, let's go to narratives and stories and tales of culture, which is probably more difficult for you to understand because you didn't grow up here, and um, you know. This is I think I Germany, think I'm, I think I'm as capable of understanding. Well, no, I mean, in the sense, I mean, I'm not saying you're not capable of understanding, but it doesn't come to you instinctually. In the same way that, like, I don't, I wouldn't understand well, the difference would, between would, culturally would, I, between you know, Heidelberg you, you, and and Frankfurt. Well, but once you live in the country for for 15 years, perhaps you do. I actually reject what you just said on a deep level, which is that. I think if there is something that really is pernicious about progressive thinking about race and identity, it is this essentialist idea that we are never capable of understanding each other. That if you're white, you're never capable of understanding the experience of an African-American. If you're an African-American, you're never capable of understanding the idea of a Latino. But I think that we are actually capable of learning and of understanding. And if we listen carefully to each other, we can understand experiences of discrimination, experiences of disadvantage, and we can come to care about them on a deeper level of political solidarity. Not in the sense of I should hold back and defer to you because you're from a more oppressed group, but on the much deeper level that I have listened to your stories. And I have to take the time and the effort to do that. That's not an easy thing. But I've listened to your story. I've understood your story. And I am outraged by what's happened to you because of my ideas about what we should be doing in this country. And I think to say, oh, you know, you didn't grow up here, so you don't understand these cultural differences. In a weird way, it has a similarity to this idea that you have to be from a particular country. You have to be born born there or you have to be of a particular group in order to understand that. I think I've I've studied the United States for a long time. I've been living in this country for a long time. I'm a citizen. Let's have a debate about various aspects of the United States. But I think you, you, you're assuming that those things about the United States I wouldn't understand because of not growing up here. And I didn't mean it as an insult. I would just assume that the example I used earlier, I know far more about German history than the average American, infinitely more. But I would never presume that, for instance, I could watch a German comedy and get the Jokes. Maybe if I mean, well, I spend a lot of time uh, with the comedy seller. Believe me, I get the jokes. But anyway, well, so, get, but, let's, but, let's, let's uh, get to your question. Okay, well, so, no, but actually, I want to pivot off of this because this is something that you wrote in your book. Because I think this is interesting. So I'm quoting you directly. This is from your first book. Far from being anti-Semitic, Germans were so keen to prove to me that they weren't anti-Semitic that they treated me with a kind of nervous niceness usually reserved for the mentally handicapped or terminally ill, driven by misplaced guilt and embarrassment about the unspeakable things their ancestors had done to mine. They ended up feeling limitlessly sorry for me, the fact of their pity and their virtue, and I'm going to insert the word signaling, you didn't write that. Okay. <laughs> their, the effect of their pity and their virtue signaling was to leave both of us with a sense that I couldn't possibly have anything in common with them. Well, so here's something interesting. I think that I want to kind of tease this into the American context, is that I think this is exactly how so many 
top 15% anywhere cosmopolitan metro area residents with a decent college education feel about quote-unquote people of color, but especially African Americans. This is how they talk to them. This is how their interactions are. And this is part of why the left fails, why they don't understand. And so for background, people who listen to my podcast know this, because but you, you wouldn't. I predicted that Trump would win 14 months prior and bet anyone who would bet me. I'd bet the maximum amount they would bet me. I knew it was going to happen. And part of the, one of the reasons I knew it was going to happen is because people were looking at these charts and they would say, well, no African-Americans will vote for him and no quote-unquote Latino-Americans will vote for him. And it's like, this, you don't understand these people. This is not true. And I, I knew the percentages would be much higher than they were looking at. There's a real problem with just one-dimensionalizing someone's experience, even if that one-dimensionalizing derives from a place of maybe good intentions, that's guilt, nervous niceness that you described, it doesn't help you understand the person. In the same way Germans were just going over the top trying to prove that they weren't anti-Semitic, it actually kind of ended up being anti-Semitic in a different way. What's the phrase? You used a phrase, I think, in the book that I'm forgetting. But there's something similar going on, and none of this is productive. I share some concerns in a related area. There's a study which has come out since I've written this book, which is my memoir you were referring to, which shows that when people, when white Americans who are very liberal speak to African-American audiences, they simplify the vocabulary a lot. They speak at a lower grade level than they do for other audiences. And when uh, conservative white Americans speak to African-American audiences, they don't do the same thing. And I do think that that shows an offensive, well-meaning and sort of sympathetic, we like you, but, you know, I'm assuming that actually I have to sort of speak down to you in order for you to be able to understand me. And I think that's a horrible attitude. And, and I think in that sense, that, that study points to something quite deep. So, so I agree with some of that. Now, two points. First is, when you look at why Trump won in 2016, he couldn't have won without any black or Latino support. But really, the reason he won is that he managed to make huge inroads among the white working class. I think that's the main reason for his victory. And that sounds a little bit different in your question, so it's important to emphasize that. The other thing, though, is that there is this idea on parts of the left that there's this rising demographic majority, that because the share of the electorate that is black or Latino is going up and the share of the electorate that's white is going down, and because white people are much more likely to vote for Republicans and people of color more likely to vote for Democrats, over time, Democrats are going to have this natural advantage that's going to keep winning. And that's, I think, a terrible idea for two reasons. The first is normatively that if you well, fast it's also forward factually this, untrue so, so I'll get to that yeah so but I think normatively if you fast forward to 2050 and this actually came true and Democrats win every election which I personally prefer to be other way around but you can walk down the street and look at somebody and say hey by the amount of melanin in your skin I can tell exactly which party you vote for that's a horrible vision of what the country would be like and it would be an unhappy aggressive dangerous country on the brink of civil war probably so I think as a vision of the future this is a dystopia rather than a utopia and the second thing is that I think for all kinds of reasons, as you're saying, it's factually likely to prove wrong. If you looked at who Italian-Americans and Irish-Americans voted for 30 or 40 years ago, it's very different from who they vote for now. And I think there's good reasons to think that Asian-Americans, for example, will not necessarily vote the way they do now in 30 years. Certainly, if we end up getting this kind of even more deeply racially polarized electorate. And so I think we should be hoping for a political system in which the two political parties are not deeply stratified by race. Well, that's a really interesting point. not a great 
predictor. Now, I want to do two things, which is first to plug my own podcast called The Good Fight, because <laughs> in the latest episode, I have Rui Teixeira on, and we discuss a lot of these issues. Rui Teixeira is a person who came up with the idea of the rising democratic electorate, but is actually very skeptical of a lot of the inferences that people are now drawing from his own work. So it's a very interesting episode. And the second thing is to say that, unfortunately, I think I have to go and give a talk uh, here <laughs> at this wonderful university. Yeah, 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 I think you do. Can I give you one last question? Sure. Okay, one last final one. So pivoting from what we were just talking about, I think this is directly related to the notion, obviously there's many things, we don't want to pin it on one thing, driving populism, but it relates to why Germans were reticent to be themselves around you, why European Americans are reticent to necessarily be themselves around, quote unquote, people of color. When are cultural tragedies or cultural traumas that are inflicted by one generation when can we forgive them? So there's this notion that you discuss in the memoir of Schustrich, if I'm pronouncing that right, I think. Schustrich. Yeah. The idea of a finish line, that we should get to a place where Germans making an argument to, for our audience to explain it. And correct me if I'm getting it wrong, because obviously you're going to know more about this than I am. The idea of Germans arguing that we have to get to a finish line, a point where we finally have to stop apologizing for the Holocaust. And I think there's a lot of people in the heartland, especially Europe, Americans, but it isn't just European Americans. As the Hidden Tribe study that was done about a year and a half ago showed, most people of color actually hate PC culture more than actual European Americans do. So when do we get to a point where the cultural tragedies, the cultural trauma inflicted by one generation can be forgotten and is no longer the fault of the succeeding generation? This is definitely a large issue of driving American politics. It may not be as large of an issue driving populism in European countries and elsewhere, although Although I, I'm not necessarily sure. It's definitely one here, though. Well, again, I would frame the question in a very different way. I don't think we'll ever get to the point where those things are forgotten. The idea of a Schlussstrich in German is this is done, it's a finish line, we've dealt with it, let's never think or talk about it again. I don't think it'll ever be possible to think of German history without making uh, reference to the Holocaust as one of its defining features. It's not the defining feature, but it's one of its defining features. And I think what we have to get to is a story of us, is a story of German nationhood which allows us to have mutual solidarity, a common sense of belonging, a pride in the good things in the country that also makes clear and honest reference to the darkest episode of German history. And I would say that something similar is true in the United States. It's not a matter of forgetting slavery or moving beyond it and saying, done, finished, never talk about it again. That, that sounds horrendous to me. But it is a matter of having an honest version of our own history that incorporates its darkest elements, but can also also allow us to be proud to be members of a society and a nation that gets a lot of these things more right today than it did in the past. I think, by the way, I've recommended my own podcast, and I'm going to repeat that, The Good Fight. <laughs> um, I know how to sell podcast subscriptions. Indeed, indeed. Whatever it is. I'm also going to recommend the I, I the, hope the, the reverse is true. You're going to mention keeping Absolutely, it civil yes. on The Good Fight, the, the, the great interview oh, you, you should you have did. told me that that's the name of a podcast, oh, then we might have kept it more civil. Uh, but um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but but we I, I, got I would, there eventually, though. Yeah, no, it's good. It's, yeah, good, yeah, it's, yeah, good. Yeah. it's all in good fun. But These Truths by Jill Lepore, I think, is a great attempt at a one-volume history of the United States, which is deeply attentive to the unjust chapters in our history.
history and we're not just episodes we're, we're pervasive through our history without therefore becoming pessimistic or negative about our ability to build a wonderful country together and without being afraid to celebrate what's wonderful about this nation and its fund it's interesting that you mentioned this I might edit this out and allow you to have the last word but I totally disagree with her narrative <laughs> oh, well, yeah. <laughs> so but anyhow thank you so much for doing this we had a little bit of tense moments but we came out of it right like I, I had fun we, we danced out uh, yeah. of it that's good so it was good I Great. really appreciate it thank you so much yeah okay we're gonna end it there after we recorded this I wrote a piece that challenges Jill Lepore's argument and in, in these truths that's the book that Monk was referring to at the end of our discussion if you'd like to check that out it's titled America is not and never was a quote-unquote nation of immigrants You've been listening to Keeping It Civil, a production of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. If you'd like to learn more about our classes or events or the requirements for a major or minor at the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership, go to scetl.asu.edu to learn more. This podcast was produced by Duncan Mensch with audio production assistance from Central Sound at Arizona PBS. Thanks for listening.